0: A teacher once asked a little boy, why doesn't the world just fall into space? The little boy responded, well, because it's on a turtle's back. The teacher said, okay, well, why doesn't that turtle fall? And the little boy replied quickly, well, because it's on another turtle. The teacher pressed, okay, and why doesn't that turtle fall? Well, said the little boy thoughtfully, obviously, it's turtles all the way down. I came across this story in a book called Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. And here in this book, uh, he says, now before we go on any further, we should all acknowledge that in one way or another, it's turtles all the way down for all of us, no matter what you take as your final authority for knowledge. See, rationalists trust in reason because it's reasonable. Logicians trust in logic because it's logical, and traditionalists, well, they trust in tradition because that's just what everyone's always trusted. So no matter what system we go by, we have certain preconceived notions, preconceived ideas of what we deem to be legitimate or reasonable that we build our entire system upon. This is the reality of faith, It can't be figured all the way out. And yet, realizing that we can't figure all of it out doesn't mean that there's no hope of understanding anything at all. Last week, Pastor Nate declared that God speaks. And ultimately, we have his final revelation here in his word that these are the very words of God contained in scripture. Well, today we ask the question, Is the Bible true? Not is there some truth that can be found in the Bible, but is the entire Bible true, all of it in its entirety, completely true? Now, there are two ways that we can approach the Bible. Uh, One is we can consider it as just a record of the religious experiences of some humans that existed prior to our time, or else... We can believe that in the Bible we have the recording of a divine person understanding his heart and his mind. So how do you and I know, how do we know that the Bible is true? Here's how I would begin to respond to that question. Uh, God only says what is true. The Bible is God's word. Therefore... The Bible must be completely true. Now this of course raises another question. Okay, well how do I know that the Bible is God's voice? How do I know that the Bible is God's word? And this is the question that we're going to attempt to respond to and uh, consider together this morning. Now, many have undertaken this particular responsibility in answering this question in many different ways. Uh, They would say, okay, well, consider the external evidence when we look at the Word of God. I mean, it's written over the span of 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors, sometimes writing concurrently, sometimes writing unaware of the other authors, written in three different languages on three different continents, and yet when you pull it all together, there's not a single inconsistency or contradiction. And therefore, something divine, something supernatural must be happening with this book. Some people would point to the overwhelming manuscript evidence that we have. Uh, They would say, "Well, nobody ever questions the historicity, whether or not it's historically accurate." Uh, Plato or uh, Homer's works of the Iliad and the Odyssey, or even some of Plato's works in antiquities, and yet we only have few manuscripts of those ancient works. When you look at the Bible, there's an overwhelming, a vastly more number of manuscripts of the New Testament than there are of any other ancient work. And so how can we question whether or not this is actually what was recorded when it was written? Some people would point to the Dead Sea Scrolls back in the 1940s, these caves in the Qumran society. They were found there, these uh, manuscripts written on tablets and whatnot, and as they brought them out and they compared them to these other, uh, the works that we have, the translation of the Bible that we have now, uh, there was seen to be almost an exact match, only differing in areas of grammar or minor points. And they would say, so look at the preservation of God's word, truly there must be something miraculous, and supernatural. Some would point to prophecies, prophecies about Jesus, and they would say, well, consider the mathematical probability of somebody fulfilling even eight of the hundreds of prophecies that were made about Jesus, the Messiah. And so they would go on to say, well, it's like painting one silver dollar red and filling the entire state of Texas three feet deep, throwing somebody out of a plane, having them parachute down, picking up one random silver dollar and that one being the one painted red. It's like, wow, that's incredible. There must be something different about this word. Some, when they're trying to prove the validity of scripture, they would compare it to other religious works And they would say, well, okay, there's something different about the Bible. Take the Quran, for instance. Uh, That was written in the 7th century by a single person who was supposedly being strangled by an angel while he was writing it. That doesn't sound super compelling. I'll go with this one rather than that one. Or Joseph Smith finding these tablets in the 1800s and translating them and then them mysteriously disappearing and then you have uh, the book of mormon and it's like well wait a minute i don't know if that story is super compelling there's something different about the bible uh, friends all of these conversations and arguments for the truthfulness of god's word they are helpful but not a single one of them is definitive in convincing anyone ever that this truly is the word of God. The Lord may use any one of these or any combination of these different proofs or arguments, but none of them will be ultimate in our believing that the Bible is truly the word of God. In his book, A Peculiar Glory, John Piper asks and answers this question. He says, how do we know that the Bible is the word of God? Answer, in and through the scriptures, we see the glory of God. That is it. Like we will not have a God honoring faith or belief that the Bible is the word of God and therefore completely true unless we see the glory of God in scripture. Piper goes on to say this, of course, this is both liberating and devastating. It's liberating because it means the sweetness of well-grounded, God-honoring confidence in scripture is not reserved for scholars, but it's available for all who have eyes to see it. And it's devastating because no human being can see this glory without God's help. This is not because we are helpless victims of blindness, but because we are lovers of blindness. In John three nineteen, Jesus says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. He continues, we are not chained in a dark cell longing to see the sunshine of God's glory. We Love the cell, because sin and Satan have deceived us into seeing the drawings on the wall as the true glory and the source of greatest pleasure. Friends, I want to begin our time today by acknowledging this reality, that no matter what I say or do for the next 25 minutes has the ability to convince you that the Bible is truly the word of God. Humanity through its intellect cannot convince itself or anyone else of the truthfulness of God's word. Of course, the Lord may use intellect and he often does, but at the end of the day, we will only see glory in the Bible. If God himself overcomes our blindness and in his grace grants us the ability to believe that his word, this Bible, is his very word spoken to us. And so because we are entirely dependent upon the grace of God, it makes only sense for us to pause and to ask the Lord for his help. So Father, I pray that you would in these next few moments together, that you would, through your word as it's declared now, help us to see your glory, and as we do, would we find you beautiful and true and compelling, and would that cause us to love your word, to treasure your word? And Father, for those who perhaps love the blindness and the darkness, oh God, I pray that you would use your word now to cut through and to shine light into their souls for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. What I wanna do with the remainder of our time is look at two lives that are recorded in the biblical narrative and show and demonstrate how their lives intersect with this reality that God must give us eyes to see his glory in his word. The first is Judas, Let's consider for a moment what we know about Judas. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verses one through four, Jesus calls 12 men to himself. One of these 12 is Judas. And so he was called by Jesus to be an apostle. He's given authority by Jesus to do these miraculous works. He sees Jesus doing healing and casting out demons. Judas knew the incarnate the enfleshed Son of God, Jesus the Christ. And he walked with him for years. And as they get towards the end of spending their time together, we read this in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 16. Then, one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see, we begin to learn about Judas that Judas loved money. I mean, after three years, after walking with Jesus and being his friend and spending life with him, it just takes him one instance where he goes to these leaders and he says, hey, what can I gain from this? How can I benefit? How can I profit? What will you give me if I give him up? And they say, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. And Judas says, sold. And so from that moment on, Judas sought an opportunity to betray him. We learn that Judas loved money and the things that money could afford. We learn that Judas was a traitor. In John 12, 46, this is when Mary anoints Jesus with precious ointment. And we read this starting in verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor. No, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. We learn that Judas was not just a lover of money. He was not just a traitor, but he was a liar. And he was willing to make people feel a certain way about not giving to the poor. Why? Not because he loved the poor and really wanted to be benevolent towards them. No, he wanted it because he could put his hand into the money bag and take more for himself. He was a liar and a thief. Judas knew Jesus. He saw Jesus heal. He saw Jesus love. He heard Jesus teach and yet, in all of this, he was blind to the glory, to the beauty, and to the all-satisfying nature of Jesus. Jesus' words in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, are what we find to be true in Judas' life. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works Were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. You see, Judas saw the light, but he did not love the light. He did not embrace the light. No, he saw the light and he hated it because it exposed the darkness of his heart. He loved money, he loved the world. And so, to protect his darkness, to protect his kingdom, he had to snuff out the light. It's similar to the reality that we find in Romans chapter 1, in verses 18 through 21, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, the the truth about God was accessible to them, but they suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. It was an active rejection of God's truth. It's not because they were ignorant. It's not because they couldn't find it out there. No, no, no. God's word declares it was clearly perceived. God made it clear to them his eternal power and his divine nature simply through the things that have been created, but because men love their unrighteousness, They reject the truthfulness of God. They cast him out, they subjugate him, they cast him aside because they would rather continue to pursue what they think will bring them ultimate pleasure. It's a conscious choice to reject God because there's a greater desire for the things of the world. This loving of the world, this pursuing of the world, this rejecting of God, it leads to futile thinking and to foolish hearts. Consider also Ephesians chapter four, verses 18 through 19. It says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now notice the order here in this passage. It says, it's their ignorance, but it's due to their hardness of heart. They don't have hard hearts because they're ignorant of the truth. No, 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 no. They're ignorant because they have hard hearts towards the truth. They love the darkness, and so they cast out the light. Dear friends, this is every single one of us apart from Christ Apart from the grace of God, we are lovers of this darkness and haters of the light. This was true of Judas, and so even though he saw Christ and knew Christ and heard Christ, he did not believe in him. He did not find him to be true and satisfying. He was unable to see the glory because of his love of the darkness and what about you and me? Maybe some of you when you open God's word you just don't see glory there. Maybe some of you even in Christ, those who have turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus and yet you're continuing to cultivate some kind of sin in your life, you're nourishing it and giving it space to take in your heart. And so because of that, you come to God's word and you're like, I come here, but every time I come, I'm just like, there's nothing there for me. I don't leave feeling any different. I don't leave thinking any different. It's just like, I did my duty. A chapter a day is supposed to keep the devil away and yet I still keep finding myself struggling with the exact same sin again and again and again and again. Friends, if we continue to cultivate darkness in our lives, if we continue to nourish our sin, we're gonna struggle to see glory. We're gonna struggle to hear beauty and to believe it as truth when we open God's word. So is there a pattern of self-indulgence or self-righteousness that's inhibiting you from seeing the light, from seeing the glory, God. Judas loved the darkness. He hated the light. And that's every single one of us outside of God's gracious work. Judas valued self above all and he loved this world more than anything. And that's all of us outside of Christ. So seeing Jesus, he failed to see his glory. Now let's look at another life and see how this truth intersects but infinitely different than the way it just intersected with Judas's. Let's look at Peter. Like Judas... Peter responded to Jesus' call to follow him. And he's listed with Judas in Matthew chapter 10. We know from many of the stories in scripture that Peter was far from being a perfect man. I mean, he denies Jesus three times. He cuts off a soldier's ear. He wanes in his faith when he's walking on the water. By his own admission in Luke chapter five, verse eight, Peter falls on his knees before Jesus. And he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, so just like Judas, Peter was also a sinner, but there was something vastly different between their two lives, something completely different that would change the course of their eternity. You see, as both Peter and Judas spent many years with Jesus and they saw Jesus do all kinds of things, uh, we arrive into Matthew chapter 16 after they've seen the quality of Jesus' life, after they've been with him in these ministry experiences, and Jesus asks them a question, who do you say that I am? And this is how Peter responds in verses 16 and 17. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Did you catch it? Something happened to Peter that didn't happen to Judas. They saw the same Jesus, they heard the same teachings, they witnessed the same miracles, but their hearts responded radically different. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to Peter. It's not ultimately because Peter had a greater intellectual capacity and as he was observing and analyzing all the same data as Judas, he was able to arrive at a different conclusion. No, 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 no. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to Peter. It was the Father in heaven who graciously granted Peter to see the beauty of the all-satisfying Christ. It was the Father in heaven who in his grace overcame Peter's blindness and sinfulness and gave him the capacity Capacity to see glory when he looked at Jesus. Paul describes what's happening under the surface in 2 Corinthians chapter four. We read this, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, there is a spiritual battle that is going on under the surface. The God of this world, he takes people's blindness and he thrusts them into further blindness. He takes people's love of the darkness and he tries to help them increase in their love of the darkness and plunge them into further darkness. He wants to hide the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to conceal the truth the message of God's word, the truth of the gospel. Because what happens when people, people like Peter, see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I love what Paul does here in verse six in this passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter four. He says this, the same God who in the beginning simply speaks and overwhelms the darkness of light The same God who takes the nothingness and creates everything, who takes the emptiness and fills it, the same God who, where there once was no life, and then he speaks and there is life, does the exact same miracle in your heart and in mine when he shines in the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. And in just as miraculous form, he causes there to be life within our souls. He causes our darkness to be overcome by light and in that moment we see the glory of Christ and when we do, we can do nothing but respond in faith. You see, when God floods our hearts with the light of his truth, in the same way that he flooded this world with light, he casts out all darkness and enables us to see. We can see the beauty of truth. We can see the beauty of Jesus. We can see the glory in his word. It's just as C.S. Lewis said. He said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else it's like this light floods our heart and now all of a sudden we can see this world for what it truly is. Without God shining this light and overcoming our love of darkness, we simply will not see. Though we may see the words on the page as we look in this book, we will not embrace them as gloriously true. Though hearing historical data and considering the subject with all the faculties of our logic, it will not be sufficient to convince us of the truthfulness of this word. Something, no, someone outside of us must act in such a decisive way as to bring life where there was no life, so as to bring light where there was once only darkness, to bring belief where there was only unbelief. Judas and Peter, they saw, they heard the same thing. But Judas and Peter responded radically different. They were both flawed, sinful human beings. They were both blind to the truth. But God acted decisively to shine light into Peter's heart. And that made all the difference. Death to life, unbelief to belief. Friend, if you believe that this word, that the Bible is God's word and you believe that it is absolutely true in everything that it declares, it's not because you arrived at that conclusion on your own. It's because God Almighty, in his infinite grace, has allowed your eyes to, to see, has unstopped your ears to hear, and has softened your heart to believe. Peter's story is your story and my story if we believe this to be the very word of God. So how do we respond? What do we do in light of this truth? Four ways that we might respond. Number one, I would invite you to pray for light. man. if you're hearing this and you are entirely unconvinced about the trustworthiness of God's word and you've been searching and seeking and looking for like what is true in this world and what is the meaning of life and what happens after I die and how can there be all this chaos in the world and what's going on? And I mean, if you're like stuck and you just don't know where to go next, I would just implore you cry out to the Lord and say, okay, God, I don't really know what's going on here, but if this is true, then I'm completely dependent upon you to overcome my darkness with your light. So I humble myself before you and I pray that you would open my eyes to be able to see this truth, to be able to see your glory, to be able to embrace this reality. Hey, maybe you have people in your life, loved ones, people that you've been sharing the gospel with, and by all means, continue to share the gospel. I mean, we recognize in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but they can't call on him unless they believe in him, and they can't believe in him unless they hear of him, and they won't hear of him unless we speak. So this message, the truth that we've been discussing this morning, it's not to say that we don't speak truth, that we don't try and help people understand intellectually what God's word is saying and what God is all about. No, 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 it's just saying that God must also act even as we proclaim that truth. And so if you have loved ones in your life, you have people that you've been sharing the gospel with, the most effective way that you can reach them is by getting on your knees and crying out that God Almighty would shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ into their hearts. So one, we pray for light. Two, we praise God for light. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you believe that the Bible is the word of God, if you have found Jesus to be glorious and beautiful and true, if you've embraced him as your savior, it is because the Father, not flesh and blood, because the Father has granted you to believe, to see, to embrace to trust in Jesus by faith, and to turn from your sins. It is all doing to his work from first to last, and that should cause us to, in humble adoration, say, oh, praise God. If it had not have been for him interceding in my life, I would continue to rebel against him and be a lover of the darkness. Thank you, God, for intervening pray for light, we praise God for light. And third, we look at the light. We keep looking at the light. Just as we have seen light, as we've seen light in the message of God's word and the truth of the gospel and we found it to be satisfying and true, now we continue to look at light. We continue to hear his voice as he speaks to us in his word. As Hebrew chapter four declares, his word is living and active, that we come here to meet with God and the spirit of God uses the word of God to then be working within our soul. It's just like the introduction video from last week where we heard Piper saying, with these words, he wakens our dead, bored souls. He frees us from bondage to sin, from desires that rob us of life. He comforts the depressed. He guides the confused. He empowers us to make our lives count for his purpose in the world. He satisfies us completely and forever with words, his words. If we don't meet with God in the Bible, we won't meet with him anywhere, not with any hope of friendship. And so I invite you, By God's grace, keep looking at the light. Keep looking at God's word and asking the Lord, oh God, would you help me to see truth and beauty and glory when I come to your word? Would you help me to not just know these facts, but to love these facts and by them to know you more and love you more because of it? Maybe you have 20 minutes when you wake up in the morning before everything gets rocking and rolling at your house. What if for those 20 minutes, you gazed at the light? Maybe you have a commute that you're just getting back into, heading back to work, and it's like, man, I want to use my time differently than I did before, and so instead I'm going to listen to God's word on my way back and forth. Maybe you put the kids down for 20 minutes for a nap. Whatever it is, at some point, at each day, look at the light. It's okay to start small, make minimums for yourself and just be consistent and continue to grow in looking at the light. Well, fourth and finally, walk in the light. We pray for light, we praise God for light, we look at the light and then we walk. In the light, we don't want to just be hearers of God's word only and so deceive ourselves. No, we want to be doers of God's word. We don't want to just look at God's word and say, Oh, that's interesting, cool, and then get about with the rest of our business in the way that we were living before. Then, no, we want to be confronted by God's word. We want to hear it as the very voice of God Almighty. And in hearing it, we want to submit our lives, bring our lives into submission to what God has revealed. Jesus in Luke 6, 46 looks at his disciples and he says, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do the things that I ask you to do? Friends, if we would grow in our love of the Lord, if we would grow in our ability to see glory in his word, it will be as we not just hear it, but as we also do God's word. This is the Christian life. God shines the light of the gospel into our hearts and we see light and we no longer love the darkness. No, instead, we find the light to be glorious and compelling and true. And so because of it, everything changes. We no longer run in this direction. No, 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 instead we run towards the light and we look more and more at the light. And as we do, just as the psalmist declares, in your light do I see light. I begin to see the good way, the way that is pleasing to the Lord. And I begin to walk in it and desire more than anything to please the Lord with my life. Our salvation Our seeing the light, our embracing the glory of God and believing that His Word is true. It is a work of God in our hearts from first to last. So let's be a people that pray for light as we look at His Word. Let's be a people who praise God for light as we look at His Word. Let's be a people who look at the light and keep looking at it. And let's be a people. Who walk in the light just as he is in the light. Father, we thank you for the truthfulness of your word. We thank you for the truthfulness that we've heard here this morning that you have worked decisively in our hearts to cause us to see, to hear, to love, to trust, and to enjoy. And God, I pray that you would continue to do that work in our hearts. And Father, for those who have not yet seen the light, oh God, would you overcome their blindness? Would you overcome their darkness? Would you give them a longing to see your glory? Only you can do it. And so we praise you infinitely for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray.